Well, we're going to keep with our uh, sermon that we began last week. So part two of We Need a Pastor is what we're studying today, kind of a topical message. Um, one of the one of the primary things we considered last week was the, the point that the Lord Jesus is the head of the church and the ramifications of the headship of Christ or, or what it means, some, some of the deductions we would make from his headship is that he unifies, the head unifies the body, it, it kind of keeps the, the body able to work with its varying parts so he unifies the body and coordinates the body he gives identity to the body these are some of the simple things that we spoke about he gives purpose to the body and he commands the body remember the reference in Matthew 16 and he told uh, Peter he said you're Peter and on this rock I will build my church and uh, the Protestant church that is your church and, and my church who who resisted the, the attempt to take over the gospel by the Roman Catholic Church, they teach that that interaction between Peter and, and the Lord Jesus made Peter the first pope. That's what the Roman Catholic teaches. So they say when, when Jesus says, you are the rock, that is to, to mean that he, he is the pope. We don't believe that. We don't believe that Peter is the first pope. And... Uh, not the least reason of which is, is that nobody in the New Testament ever looked to Peter as a leader of the church. I think that's a great, uh, very self-explanatory reason why you and I don't think Peter was a pope. As a matter of fact, there's a, uh, an interesting incident about um, Peter uh, beginning to uh, stay away from Gentiles in a, in, a, in a circumstance in the New Testament. He was afraid to eat with them, and, and Paul rebukes him because he had Peter had become a little bit unsure about how Gentiles and Jews could uh, interact with one another. And so Paul rebuked him, and, and that's not meant to you know put Peter in any particular wicked uh, light or anything, but he's just an apostle like the other apostles. And, and, and the, the noble thing about Peter is that Peter is correctable. And we know that about Peter because he errs numerous times in, in grand ways, doesn't he? And when he gets called out, when he's corrected, he, he is uh, correctable, which is a great, uh, a great characteristic of a, rear, of a real Christian, somebody who can be corrected. And uh, correct your path as, as a testimony of, of God's spirit at work in you. But it certainly wasn't an, an example of uh, Peter's being the first pope, the, the infallible spokesman for the church, right? So we don't believe that Peter's a pope. But the significant thing we touched on last week was is, is the Lord Jesus is the one who said, I will build my church. And that was the, the thing we focused on. The Lord Jesus is the Lord of the church. He's the head of the church. Matthew 28, 19, and 20, we, we, we mentioned briefly. And that's where the Lord gave instructions to his disciples. He said, all authority is mine. All, all authority in heaven and on earth is mine. And so if you are a disciple of the Lord Jesus... You must hear those words as words being spoken to you. He's, he's speaking this as the resurrected Savior. He says, all authority is mine. Go, therefore, 
and make disciples of the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And lo, I will be with you always to the end of the age. The Lord Jesus commands the church to go and make disciples as the one who is going to build the church, as the one who is the head of the church, as the one who has redeemed the church with his own blood. We also spoke about how the Lord has established an administration. We begin to speak um, in, in some small degree about the, the government or, or, the, or the way the Lord has uh, placed people in the church for the church's sake. The list is in Ephesians 4. It's apostles, prophets, evangelists, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastor. I always get confused because there's five but the pastor teacher is, is is one thing in the list, so there's only four, but there's five. So pastor teacher, last one on the list. There's there's an administration. In other words, the church is actually designed with design to it. I I, I believe many people in places like Mendocino County, um, I, I bump into them frequently. I, I met one a week or two ago. They said, I have been a Christian for uh for, for 40 years. I haven't been to church in 20 years. And and there are a lot of people who feel that, that those things go together, but they don't really go together. The, the, the New Testament would, would exhort you, do not forsake the assembling together with the saints in the book of Hebrews, right? A, a person who is a Christian but, but somehow divorced from their congregation is either one, they're very possibly not a Christian, or number two, they're living in terrible disobedience to the Lord. Your, your, your relationship to your local congregation is part of what it means to be a Christian, and we just started touching on that last week, and it was through this administration that the Lord has given to the church. So big picture church work, Matthew 28, go make disciples. That's big, big picture. Refined more details taking place in, in uh, Ephesians chapter 4. He gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, wife for the equipping of the saints. Where do the saints get equipped? At church. Now, it's not the building, but it's as you are a part of your congregation is where you get equipped. And the Lord God, church builder, has determined to do that through these things he gave to the church called apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. So this administration exists for your equipping. This administration in the church exists for goals in your life as a disciple of the Lord Jesus. So this is how the disciples of the Lord Jesus carry on in his work after his ascension. Look at Ephesians 2, um, 8 and 9. And, and think about the implications of this passage to a disciple, to a follower of Christ, who may or may not understand that you have actually been called with the purpose my assertion is that your purpose that you have been called to is to be a part of your local congregation, be equipped, serve, be involved in the disciple making of the Lord Jesus. What do we see in this passage in Ephesians 2, 8 to 10? We really like the first part. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not of yourselves, not by works, lest anyone should boast. 
We love that. It's glorious. It's a, it's a great, wonderful gospel passage. What does it say after this? What does it say right after that? The gift of God, lest anyone should boast. Not, a, I'm sorry, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are, is how it continues, for we are what? We are his workmanship. Now, if you are a piece of workmanship, what does that mean? It means you're like a chair. It means you're like a table. It means you're like a building. In other words, you have been assembled. You have been made. Why? You are his workmanship. Why? Being made a member of a congregation means he made you. He's, he's assembling you. He built you. Why? You are his workmanship. Keep reading. It's, it's just super simple. This isn't a deep, profound thing. Created in Christ. Now that's a reference to how a person has been born again. Created in Christ for what? For good works. And, and 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 when were those works determined? Before. Before what? Before the work. Before you. <laughs> before you. Okay. They were determined before you. They were before. <laughs> prepared in advance. Good works prepared in advance for you to do. In other words, this idea of a church, which is his congregation of called out people, the church, is something he designed and planned before. It is something that exists in the decree of God before. His works existed before. How do you know what to do in them? How, how do you do his works? Well, all here in the context of, of Ephesians is as part of your church. You, you, you get equipped in your church so you are equipped to serve. Why, why are you equipped? Why are you being prepared like this? To do these works so you know how to walk in these works that he had prepared before time for his church. The Lord Jesus is building his church. Look at Isaiah 43, 7. Isaiah 43, 7. You guys there, can you see that passage? It's a very interesting verse when we're thinking about works that God has prepared in advance for you to do. It says, everyone is called by my name, whom I have created for my glory. I have formed him. Yes, I have made him. Can you, can you see the resemblance between Isaiah 43.7 and Ephesians 2.10? Can you see the resemblance there? What did God create men for? For his glory. They're created for his glory. Now, when a man is born in Adam, how does man glorify God? Well, he doesn't. He's in utter rebellion to God. He's, he's lost in his sin, isn't he? When, when you and I are born in Adam, when, when, when we live in this world in Adam, that means we, we've inherited all the sinfulness and all, all the guilt of Adam. How, how would you glorify the Lord? Well, you can't. So how does someone 
come to be able to glorify the Lord. He must be born again. And when he's born again, he's made a new creature and he's being conformed to the image of God and Christ is a new creature, right? So there's this contrast. The old dead man in Adam is born again. He's given new life. What is the new creature for? Why has he been given new life? Why is there a new creature in Christ? Not in Adam anymore because God is doing a work in this world. He is building his church in men to demonstrate the glory of God, to show his glory among men. He has a point in purpose in this world. What a great verse. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I have created for my glory. The new birth is a new creation. You realize that, right? The new birth is a new creation. Just as the Lord God spoke into the darkness and created the light or or created the earth out of nothing, so is you who heard the gospel call and responded in faith. It is the preached word, and sometimes that preached word may have been through your reading and in the Bible, but it was the word of God that gave life where there was no life. It created a new life. You've been created for his glory. That's the, that's the substance of what we're looking at here. You know, when the Lord taught his disciples to pray, one of the phrases he said in the Lord's Prayer, he says, May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Do you ever pray that? Do you occasionally pray the Lord's Prayer and and say, Lord, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, and then you yourself not have much interest in accomplishing his will in your own life? Is it in your heart and in your heart's desire to accomplish the Lord's will? But the Lord taught his disciples we should Desire that his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. We should. Well, what, what do we do when we find our, our hearts are sometimes at odds with, with the Lord's will? Or maybe we don't even want to know it because then it might require something of us that interferes with what we wanted to do. Do our own will sometimes conflict with God's will? Do we find that happening sometimes? Of course we do. As a grossly rhetorical question because I know you're made of the same clay that I'm made of. There are many times when when you find God's purposes and God's will to conflict with yours. That is the point of being a disciple of the Lord Jesus, isn't it? It's It's a point of being a part of your congregation, isn't it? The Lord has established an administration he's he's established a way by which men would would invest themselves would volunteer themselves to know and understand the will of God accomplish the works that he has prepared in advance for us to do do God's will on earth as it is done in heaven it's all part of this decree of God this plan of God that men would glorify the Lord by accomplishing his will and his works on earth. The pastor teacher is an equipper. The pastor teacher is an equipper. That's the word right out of uh, the book of Ephesians, or yeah, Ephesians 4, to equip the saints for works of service. And and the goal of the equipper as, as he is teaching, and, and remember all of those offices, uh, apostle, prophet, Evangelist, pastor, teacher, those are teachers. Those are all teaching offices. Those things that God has given to the church teach. 
And the goal of each of the taught is what in Ephesians 4? If you had to look at yourself in light of Ephesians 4 and go, my goal, I know I'm done and I know I've accomplished what God has begun, when what happens? When you have reached spiritual maturity to the full measure of the stature of Christ is how it goes. That's when you're done with with the point of what God has invested for your growth in the church is perfection in Christ. So don't despair, though. It doesn't mean that uh, you're going to attain some measure of sinless perfection. But it does mean that you are increasingly spiritually mature as you invest yourself in this thing that the Lord has designed for his church. So the pastor teacher is an equipper and is working and is equipping. One of the things we touched on last week is is he has an accountability because his work will be tested as by fire is the reference we looked at last week. The, The equipper who is teaching his congregation is called building. Paul says, I have built and another will build upon it, but it will be tested is what Paul said in the passage we read last week. So there's a there's a really strict level of accountability on the equipper and those being equipped. So we need to be careful in how we apply ourselves to this this work that God is about doing in his church. We really need to be thoughtful in how and where we would participate in a work Like this, you don't want to be part of a congregation that has no understanding of this. You wouldn't want to be built on where your pastor and your church had no recognition of these basic principles of of building disciples, right? You, You wouldn't want to be in a place that didn't understand God's goal in the church that didn't understand the the point of Christian maturity, you wouldn't want to be in in a congregation like this. You want to be in a congregation who understands what spiritual building is for, how to build biblical spiritual building. Remember, Paul said, if you build with gold, the gold will be tested by fire. And if you build with hay, the hay will be tested by fire. What survives fire, gold or hay? Gold. Gold. So we want to be in a church that knows how to build with gold and silver and costly stones, not wood, hay, and stubble, because the work is tested by fire. In other words, there's a right way to build. There's there's a way to build that survives the test, and there's a way to build that cannot survive the test. So how do you you and I understand as Christians in 2022 and the 21st century, how are we to understand that we are a part of something that's building with gold? And silver and costly stones. How are we to how are we to get it? Well, we just have to keep studying the word and see how has the scripture unfolded this process for us? How has the scripture uh, described this for us so that we understand our need and how to give our lives to this in a truly faithful manner? Our need of a true pastor is at least in one sense because The Christian life is easy to mess up. You need a true pastor because the Christian life is easy to mess up. We'll have an interesting illustration of that in a moment. Sometimes a Christian really does want 
good things. Many times a Christian wants good things. They want to accomplish good and right. And so this is admirable and this is right. But sometimes they believe wrong. They're, they're not exercising faith in a, in a biblical manner. And, and this will come to light here when we get to some, some of the meat here. But the point is, is earnestness isn't enough to be on the narrow path of the Christian life. Earnestness is not enough. Well, biblically informed faith is the object and the goal of a Christian being able to practice and, and live out his Christian life. And so unless we're careful about this, we may end up living in a way that betrays the Lord. We will do what we think is right. And unless you're in a congregation that is good at speaking truth one to another in love, that's another phrase out of Ephesians 4. If, if you're part of a congregation that's not good at doing that, then you will go on doing some sort of falseness with no correction, with no light to, to reveal that you're on a, a dangerous path. And so we want to be part of a congregation where it's okay for a brother in the Lord to say, you know, I noticed this thing that you were thinking out loud about or this thing that you said, and, and I don't think that's true. That, that really isn't what the scripture says. Or you've, you've been doing this thing and, and that really isn't a, a work of faith. If you're in a congregation where men and women can speak this way one to another in love, the result is, is over time, faith that is actually built on genuine biblical principles. So we really want to be part of a congregation that recognizes we need, you need, a Christian brother and a Christian sister who can speak into your life in a way where you can receive correction. You're not infallible. Trust me. You're not infallible. Praise the Lord. We need to be in a church where this is possible to take place. We're going to think about this through the life of Abraham in a very famous story about Abraham. Abraham did this once. There, there's an example of Abraham's earnestness, an example of Abraham's desiring the will of God, but his faith being ill-informed. His, his faith wasn't corrected, and he took step, steps of unbelief. Okay, Abraham was promised that he would have a child. Who promised Abraham that he would have a child? God. God himself promised him that he would have a child. But he didn't have a child. And how old was he? And he still had no child. He was at least 90 and he still had no child. Right? Is it getting late? How many of you are 90 yet? Lance isn't even 90 yet. Wes isn't even 90 yet. Could you have a baby this next year if you wanted to, Wes? I'm just going to say no. Why? The, the, 
The equipment doesn't work. I mean, the, 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 the seed isn't there anymore. Maybe the eggs aren't there anymore. It just doesn't work once you get to a certain place, right? There, there's a limited capacity and an older man and an older woman have a child. And so Ernest, Abraham, and his wife Sarah know they were promised. And, and what relies on this promise? If they don't do what was promised, what problems lie in the future for Abraham and Sarah? Well, blessing to the world for one. One of, one of the promises through the seed of Abraham is that the world and the nations would be blessed. Well, we better have a kid or, or, or this just cannot happen. So Sarah had an idea. What was Sarah's idea? Well, honey, I, I just can't do it anymore. Maybe my, maybe my house girl could do it. Now, is that logical? Yes, of course. Was their intention wicked? No. They, they were actually relying on the promises of God, weren't they? They had their eyes fixed on the promise. These guys are believers. They could have gone to your church if they were church-going people. They weren't in the church-going era. But right? We're not looking at pagan unbelievers here. We are looking at people with earnest faith. What's wrong with their faith? It's ill-informed. Their faith is ill-informed. Their faith isn't corrected. Abraham said, you're right. I'll sleep with Hagar. So sometimes earnestness and even faith is wrong. It was wrong for Abraham and Sarah and Hagar. In a similar way, in a very, very similar way, a church might desire to have large member roles. Could a church desire, like us, could we desire to have 200 people instead of 20? What could we do to get them here? Nice music, maybe. Better furniture. A more engaging preacher, speaker. You could do a number of things to double the size of, of who is here in this room. Now, how do you know if that would be building with gold or wood, hay, and stubble. How do you know? You better have a pastor who knows how to build. You better have a shepherd who understands these principles of biblical Holy Spirit building and not. You better know. You better know. Sarah and, and Abraham were earnest and they just went along with this idea. Obviously, they weren't part of a church. Obviously, Abraham didn't have someone to correct him. These illustrations can easily break down at, at, at certain points. And one of my friends used to say, you know, you, you, you can't make everything walk on all four legs. Every illustration isn't necessarily a walk on all four legs. But we got a solid three legs here. So 
Sometimes a church wants to be blessed so badly that they will betray God's principles in order to have the big growth blessing. And it's not wrong to want your church to grow. It's not wrong to want to have a whole bunch of people in your church. But it would be wrong if you did it not using the Lord's principles to build. So Abraham in this case is an example to you and I. And and what I want you to see in Abraham is it was easy for him to do that. He wasn't planning to do something wicked. You could be part of a congregation that does foolish, unbelieving things. You could very easily be part of a congregation like that. You don't want to be. You want to be Christians who who are developing a discernment so that you would know I am in a church that is going to tend to make these errors or I am in a church that is going to tend not to make these errors. How do you know that you're in one or the other? One, one way is being in a church where your pastor is going to protect you from doing that. We're going to look at how the scripture speaks about that. Look at Genesis. Uh, I do want you to see this, this, the reference in uh, uh, Genesis 16 about Abraham. <clears throat> Just read this with me. Genesis 16, 1 and 2. And put yourself in their shoes. Put yourself in Abraham and Sarah's shoes. Don't tell yourself, oh, we would never have done that. You probably would have done exactly what Abraham had done and made this mistake. Genesis 16, verse 1. Now Sarah, or Sarai is her name here, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had an Egyptian maidservant whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, See now, the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. And that was true. Later he unrestrains her, right? Please go into my maid. Perhaps I shall obtain children by her. And Abram heeded the voice of Sarai. It's just simply an example of not building by faith. This is how you build with wood, hay, and stubble. This fruitfulness produced terrible grief in Sarah's life, in Abraham's life. In Hagar's life. Abram and Sarah did not know how to believe and trust the Lord. Their faith was not informed. Their faith wasn't trained. They had not been equipped. Interestingly, In their seeking growth, they actually accomplished this growth, didn't they? If we're to compare Abraham and Sarah to a church growth strategy, did they experience church growth? (laughs) There was a baby in the crib. What was his name? Ishmael. It worked, but it worked disastrously, didn't it? It really worked disastrously. They didn't know how to trust the Lord, did they? They didn't know that they should just wait and let God fulfill his promise to them. They didn't know that. 
They didn't understand that. You know, the Lord has given instructors. The Lord has given instructors to the church. What are they called? You know the names of them already. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastor, teachers. The Lord has given instructors to the church. And one of the things a Christian needs to realize is you have no idea what you haven't been taught yet. You have no idea. I don't have any idea what I haven't been taught yet. I don't claim to be the the, 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 the Lord's answer to the need of pastors in the world. There's certainly many, many, many more qualified and more intelligent men to be pastors. But a church needs a good pastor. A church needs a good teacher. That would be the main point for us to to consider here. The Lord Jesus has an administration over a church. The Lord Jesus has this design that Christians would apply themselves to this kind of administration. So what does the pastor look like? The scripture does speak with some clarity on if you were to look for one, what would you be looking for? There's two great texts in the scripture. We're going to look at at one of them in the book of Titus. When you find a biblical pastor, you can with more confidence know that you're in a biblical church. But if, if you learn what he looks like and you're in a church where that doesn't define him, then you can also recognize false churches. You, you, you can learn the difference between a place that is going to be building biblically and a place that is not going to be building biblically if you can learn what a biblical pastor looks like. So this is what we're going to look at in, uh, just in the Titus passage here. Titus chapter 1. So when we learn what a pastor looks like, then you can, with some confidence, find a church that is doing the Lord's will. Let's look at the passage here. Titus chapter 1, verse 4. Titus 1, 4. To Titus, our true son in our common faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination, for a bishop must be blameless as a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict the 
almost mirror-like passages in 1 Timothy chapter 3. We're, we're not going to read that one this afternoon. But 1 Timothy 3, 1 to 7 is a very similar bit of instruction to another young pastor who has been told to do the same thing here. So, obviously, Paul who has been ordained by the Lord Jesus Christ as an apostle, is teaching a young pastor, Titus, how to ordain pastors. He was instructed to do this. And so by us reading this together with Titus, we can see that the Lord is taught what you should see and know about a person who is to be a pastor. We, we can see some pretty good descriptions of him here. You do or do not have a pastor as you see or don't see this in the person who is standing in your podium in your congregation. In other words, when when you realize that this passage here in Titus is a pastor, not the title on the shirt, not the title on the wall in the building. That would mean you could come into a church and maybe hear the the coarse jokes of the person standing there or maybe know they're on wife number two or three in the last couple of years. Or when, when you learn to recognize this, that this is a pastor and you go and meet that guy who's calling himself a pastor or maybe some of the people in his congregation is calling himself a pastor, but you're like, wait a minute. That's not him. They have put a person in that office here who is not a pastor. Do you see what I'm explaining to you here? This is really important for you to realize because the sheep follow the shepherd. But if you don't know what the shepherd sounds like and if you don't know what the shepherd looks like, then you're going to follow the wrong person. So a church that needs a pastor needs to be really clear on Who is a pastor? How do we recognize him? Because many will come and say, hey, I'll be your pastor. Now, in our case, there aren't many because we don't have a lot of money to offer them. We don't have a lot of fame to offer them. And so this is going to present another problem for us, which we'll get to later. This this gives us a, a different sort of a challenge. So when we learn who he is by what he looks like in the word here. Then we know how to profile a pastor. You and I know what to be looking for, and we would also know what to be. um, If we see certain things, we can say, now we know for sure that that person is not a pastor and he cannot help build Christ's church. So first thing on the list there, do you see it? The first thing that I would say is number one is he's blameless. Blameless. I love how the Cambodian Bible um, translates that word. The, the phrase in Cambodian says he's, he's a person of which you cannot grab and hold a wrong or a sin. You can't grab and hold a sin. And so what that means is is If Eva said something really mean to me or slashed my tires or or did something, you know, downright mean and bad, 
and then pretended like it never happened and and that I deserved it. That would be a bad you can grab. As in that the thing that she had done still sticks. She, she had done this mean thing. But when the Cambodian word here says you can't grab and hold a bad would mean she says, I'm so sorry. I, I just lost my temper and I didn't mean to say that. And, and, and that kind of behavior between people makes it let go. So when the Khmer says you can't grab and hold a bad, it means that the person doesn't ever say they're sorry. It means the person never is correctable. So it doesn't mean, when, when it says blameless, it doesn't mean they're perfect. It means that you can't hold something against them. Okay? There's a difference between those two things. So I like to consider a person who is, is willing to keep short accounts. So if I did something mean, to Banning, or if I if, if I left Banning hanging at lunch and I never said sorry, or if I borrowed 20 bucks from him and I forgot to pay him back, I wouldn't ignore it and say, Man, I'm so sorry, I for, forgot to give you that 20 bucks back, or I'm so sorry, I stood you up at lunch. Or uh, a person who's blameless is a person who you trust as someone who is upright. And when they wrong you in some way, they seek forgiveness and they seek to make it right. So this is the sense that a pastor is blameless. There's a couple of exceptions to this rule. One would be, and we'll touch on this maybe a little bit more later, but if if a pastor has been divorced while he's a believer, we couldn't say he's blameless in the sense that he, in the, Timothy passage is to be a one-woman man, and so there's a characteristic in a pastor where he is supposed to be loyal to his wife in a a unique way, and that has to do with, you go all the way into the Old Testament, and it has to do with, can can a person who is an idolater be a priest? Could, could you have a priest in the in the temple who also has an idol at home? You couldn't. So a man who had betrayed his duty to the tabernacle by taking on idols is also seen in a man who would take another woman betraying his own wife. It's the same kind of a picture. And so I don't mean to take that rabbit trail, but... Um, that man can be forgiven, of course, and and if that man seeks forgiveness and 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 wants to be in fellowship with believers, he can. But I would say he would be permanently disqualified from being a pastor at that point. So, point number one in the list in Titus is is he is to be blameless. Now, here's a more important question, and this is going to be the underlying question to all of these. So, listen carefully to this and think about this. The first qualification of an elder in Titus is, is he must be blameless. How would you know? How would you know? This is the hard part of finding a pastor. When you met me and asked me to come be your pastor, did you know if I was blameless or not? I would say you didn't. How would you know? Who should you ask to be your pastor if you don't know? This is a really, really 
tricky aspect of finding a pastor. Most women know that there are times when their husbands are a little bit more grouchy than they are in public. Do any of you women know men like that? You might be married to one. Occasionally your husband loses his temper. That is only to demonstrate or illustrate that all people have at least two faces, right? Their public face and their private face. And so when we're looking for a pastor and even this first qualification of blamelessness, I'm not saying that a, a, a pastor might not lose his temper with his wife, but if he's blameless, what does a man do when he says something mean to his wife? He apologizes to her. He, he remains blameless because he won't harm her with his words. He, he, he won't defame her with his words. So he will remain blameless. But what if he's not blameless? How would you know? How do you know he doesn't manipulate her and speak cruelly to her or even hurt her sometimes? How would you know? He must be a blameless man. You must be the people who find out how will we know if he's blameless or not? Now, right now, I'm not going to answer that question. All I want to do right now is reveal to you when you're looking for a pastor, answering that question is crucial. And it's true of all of these questions. Let's look at the next one. It says, um, actually, I, didn't, I, I made a short list here. Who would you ask? Family, neighbors, employers, coworkers, all those people you could ask about their blamelessness. Husband of one wife, one, six. A man is blameless. Husband of one wife. He's a man. He must be a man. The, the elder is a husband. He's not the wife of one man. It's the husband of one wife. He's faithful. The, the one wife speaks of his faithfulness, of his, of his loyalty, and one of the reasons of this is a man's loyalty to the church, his commitment to the church is the kind of loyalty that is in a loyal marriage. As a man is devoted to his wife under all pressures, so a man must be loyal to his church under the same kinds of pressures. When stuff gets hard in a marriage, what does an unfaithful man do? He says, I'm out of here. She's too much trouble. I don't like to deal with the problems. I, I, I don't want to deal with this. Well, is that the kind of person you want shepherding a church? No. You want a one-woman man. You want a man who's going to stick in there. He's going to hang in there. And he's going to persevere. Not an adulterer. How are you going to know? How do you know if the person you're asking to be a pastor is an adulterer? Are you willing to find out if the person you're thinking about being a pastor is an adulterer? Are you, are you willing to find out? Are you, are you afraid, wow, that, that sure would be kind of getting into their business a little too much, you know? I, should, we, should we meddle in that? Should you? 
Yes. Yes. Why? Because the word of God says he is the husband of one wife. You you will be disobeying God if you call a man into your pastorate who is not this kind of man, a husband of one wife. First Timothy three two says the same thing. He's a husband of one wife. The the way I've heard this explained in a slightly different phrase is a, a one woman man. And so what that would mean is is maybe if your wife is deceased and you remarried, most most conservative Christians would say that wouldn't disqualify him. He's had two wives, but he was faithful to the one until she passed away and he remarried. And so he's a one woman man. Another question can come into this where maybe before a man was converted, he was a fornicator and adulterer. And when he when he converted, when he came to Christ, is his life since he's come to Christ been as a faithful one woman man? Most conservative Christians would look at his qualification in that light. So we wouldn't look at his life pre-Christ. We would look at their life in Christ and see if they meet that qualification. Again, wondering about how you would know this, how would you know? How would you know if your pastor has been an adulterer or not? That's not necessarily an easy thing to find out. But you're going to want to find out. You could ask his wife. You could say, has has your husband ever committed adultery against you? Again, you you might feel really, really uh, uncomfortable doing that, but I believe it's utterly necessary for you to know. You could ask the children, maybe. You could ask people who who would know. Why? Because you don't want uh, a man to be a pastor who has disqualified himself from that way. The next... uh, The next one, after the husband and one wife, says, having faithful children not accused of dissipation and insubordination. We'll make this our last one this afternoon. An elder has children of a certain characteristic. One of the reasons we would surmise that this is true is is if, if he has raised children to have a certain kind of behavior and characteristic, we we could assume that his manner in teaching and training those in his church would be similar. If, if the children of this person you want to be an elder are consistently not, uh, what are, what, what's our word here? Um, faithful. faithful, not accused of dissipation and insubordination, not accused of, of wild living and, and disobedience. Okay? If, if, the children are respectful if, if they live generally upright lives, then, then you can see, well, their fathers help them learn to do that. He's, he's restrained them. He's, he's helped them learn how to restrain their, their passions and, and their sinful lives. Again, how would you know? If, if we want a man whose children are not like that, how would you know? Like if if I came and I was going to say, hey, I'd like to be your pastor. If I came today, where are my kids? Well, they're on the East Coast. How, how, what, what are you going to ask about my kids? 
How are you going to know if I'm the kind of guy that, that the Lord has taught us to look for? I'm only asking the question because this is the obligation of a congregation. Your obligation is to look for this man that the Lord has established to be speaking to and teaching and shepherding his church. We need to learn to recognize them. And when we have questions like this, you need to go, hmm, I don't know anything about his kids. I need to find out a little bit about them so that I might know. Is this this kind of guy or not? Let me uh, have you look at 1 Samuel 16, and we'll wrap this up for this afternoon. And then I'm, I'm going I'm to introduce this illustration like this. The Word of God is, is laying out for you a, 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 a profiling scheme. The Word of God is teaching you here to be careful looking at what you should be looking at so when we find and ask someone to be our shepherd, we're looking with the right kind of eyes. We want to look with the right kind of eyes. So look at this passage in 1 Samuel 16, verse 4. At 1 Samuel 16, Israel wants a king. They've never had a king, and they're, they're kind of eagerly looking for a king. So verse 4 Samuel did that which the Lord spake, and Samuel went to Bethlehem. God told him, hey, Samuel, go to Bethlehem. You're going to find the king there. The elders of the town trembled at his coming because he was a prophet, and they weren't sure if he was coming with some angry words from God. And they said, you come peaceably. And he said, peaceably, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. So sanctify yourselves. Get yourself ready for, for sacrifices, and then come with me to the sacrifice. And he sanctified Jesse and his sons. So Jesse, as you recall, is the father of David. He, he, he set him apart. He, he made them uh, ceremonially clean. And his sons, and he called them to the sacrifice. And it came to pass when they were come. And he looked on Eliab, and he said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. In other words, Samuel said, Man, I can see this kid, one of Jesse's sons, named Eliab, that guy is definitely king material. Why do you think Samuel knew that? What do you think he saw about Eliab and said, wow, there's a king right there? Was he short or tall? It's not in the text. <laughs> he was probably tall. Was he scrawny or muscular? He's a king, okay? We're looking for Israel's first king. Who does Samuel think he might see? What does the king look like? Kings, the, the king I want would be a big guy, handsome. I, w I wouldn't want the ugly, scrawny one. We want, we want a king we can be proud of. Very, very few ugly men from the time television became available in America. Ugly men don't become presidents. Why? People don't want ugly men to be presidents. They, they want a president. They, can, they want a manly man they can have as their president. This is just life. Television changed the world in terms of who politicians are. 
Why? Because men make big decisions with their eyeballs. That's what we're reading about here in Samuel. Eliab, for whatever reason, is what Samuel saw. Of course, this must be the king. Verse 7 says, The Lord said to Samuel, Look not on his countenance. Or in other words, don't be misled by your eyeballs. Don't make a wrong decision because you don't know what you're looking for, in other words. They're looking for a king. We're looking for a pastor. I'm teaching you that the Bible is teaching you what to look for. Don't look for what appeals to your humanity. Look for what the scripture teaches you to look for. This goes on to say, it says, look not on his countenance or on the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord seeth not as man seeth. For man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And the Lord told him who to pick. Now, this is another interesting parallel. We're almost done. They looked at all the kids there, all those boys there. And was the king there? He wasn't even there. He wasn't even there. But they, they're like, well, who, who, who else could there be? Sometimes you will get desperate. Sometimes you'll be thinking, well, there's nobody else. And then the prophet said, go, go get your other son. Go get your other son. So beware. Beware of how easily your eyes can be misled in, in looking for a pastor. Beware of how easily your wisdom will not naturally be God's wisdom. His word is is revealing how it is we go about this. We've got just a little bit more to go in this message, and we'll uh, we'll finish this up uh, next week. We'll look at some more of the qualifications and uh, ask some more of the questions of how we uh, go about finding a person to be a pastor. But let's close in prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word again. We thank you for uh, explaining and teaching that we might learn to look. And Lord, as we as we look and ponder, Lord, help us to ask good questions. Help us to be good at discerning who it is that you would raise up to be a pastor and teacher. Oh Lord, we love you and we praise you and we trust you. In Jesus' precious name, amen.